Genesis uh, 19, uh, verses 1 through 26. Let us hear the word of the Lord. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that, so that they wore them <coughs> so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out. Bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife, and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you've shown me great kindness in saving my life but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one, and my life will be saved? He said to them, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. 
the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valleys and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Blessed be the word of the Lord. Thank you, Nick, very much. You could think of the structure of what we're going to look at along these lines. Be a question and an answer and a response. So kind of keep that outline in mind. A question and an answer and a response that's required. Let's look at the question. The question would be, does God judge rightly? Does God judge rightly? You see, it began as an ordinary day back in chapter 18. Abraham was dozing off in the heat of the day when he looked up and standing before him suddenly were three individuals. As the discussion unfolds, Abraham realizes they were no ordinary visitors. In fact, one was God himself. It was God showing up in appearance as a man, what's called a theophany, and he's got two angels with him. And then the conversation takes an ominous turn. God says, the outcry against these cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, is great. Their sin is very grave. And so God has come to basically determine if immediate judgment is necessary. Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham thinks. That's, that's where my nephew Lot lives. I mean, surely Lot hasn't always made great decisions. Yes, he moved to the very edge of the promised land, if not beyond the promised land, just for better watered fields, just to prosper his flocks, just to get ahead, materially speaking. But to have Lot swept away with, with the entire city of Sodom and the entire city of Gomorrah, that is troubling to Abraham's soul. So he asks in chapter 18, verse 25, Far be it from you, God, to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? There's a question that kind of looms in the background of the entire passage. Shall not the God, the judge of the earth, do what is just and, and right and appropriate. And with that, Abraham begins to act like a priest. He begins to intercede for these cities and his nephew. He asks God, uh, well, what if there were 50 righteous persons there? I mean, 50 people who, who knew you and were following you. You would spare the cities, would you not, for 50 people like that. And God says, yes, for 50 people, righteous people, people who know me, I will spare the whole place. Abraham says, well, what, what about 45? <laughs> How about 45 people? God says, yeah. How about 40? 30? 20? 10? That's Abraham as priest. And you you kind of feel this tension in his soul, don't you? Shall, shall not the judge of the earth do what is just and right and good and appropriate? And friends, we often ask the same question, but for perhaps a different reason. Abraham is struggling with, 
Will God judge all people the same? Will he punish all people equally? We struggle with, should God punish people at all? Should God judge people at all? Different angle, same ending point, same tension in our souls. Does God judge rightly? And you know, in some ways, that tension is very understandable, especially in the book of Genesis. Genesis has a, an overarching theme of God's blessing. God's blessing. God, God blesses mankind in chapter 1. We forfeit that blessing in chapter 3. Yes, there is a big flood, but then God blesses again. He blesses Noah, and then he promises through Abraham to bless everyone, all nations, all families of the earth. I mean, that comes up in chapter 18, verse 18. The very reason why God brings Abraham into his confidence of what he's about to do is because God's going to bless all families of the earth through him. There is an overarching theme in Genesis of God's blessing, and don't we love God's blessing? But here we have a judgment passage. So the God who blesses is also the God who judges. Now what do you think about that? What, what do you think about that? God extravagantly blesses in Genesis. We've been seeing it week after week. And he's going to wipe these cities off the map. How do you... How do you hold these realities together? Do you hold them together? Or is your approach to God more cafeteria style? You know, I like this attribute of God. I don't like that attribute of God. I, I'll take some servings of grace and mercy, but I really, I really don't want any servings of justice. <laughs> You know, I can't really stomach holiness anymore. It doesn't sit well with me. Our struggle may not be identical with Abraham, but the question ends up being the same. Does God judge rightly? And chapter 19, what Nick read, provides the answer. Here's how it summarizes the answer. God rightly judges all the earth. The answer is God rightly judges all the earth. Let me show you what I mean. In chapter 19, the two angels visit Sodom. And who do they find sitting in the city gates but Abraham's, Lot, uh, Abraham's nephew Lot? Again, the last time we saw Lot, he was picking the well-watered land, pitching his tent near Sodom. And now he's in the city gates. He's a leading citizen of Sodom. Now, the Apostle Peter mentions that Lot's soul was tormented by this situation, and that's good to know because the situation is very problematic, as we'll see. Lot offers his guests the five-star Middle Eastern hospitality treatment, but the men, the angels, initially refuse. Now, we're going to sleep outside in the city square, and Lot is very concerned about that, very concerned for their safety. Finally, he prevails on them, has a feast prepared for them when we read, beginning in verse 4, but before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. 
And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. So not even ten people following God like Abraham had interceded for. Not even ten. Verse verse 4 is making that point, isn't it? Verse 4 says, All the people to the last man surround the house. I'm not going to read all of this, but in response, Lot does the unthinkable. Offers his daughters to the mob in place of the guests. Now, some theorize, probably rightly, that Lot kind of feels stuck between the standards of hospitality in his day and the demands of the mob. Regardless, it's still unthinkable and inexcusable. And another example of how very realistic the Bible is. The Bible is utterly realistic about life in a fallen world. You read that scene, just see how this is utterly realistic. Life in a fallen world. The Bible tells us the good, the bad, and the ugly, and this is very, very ugly. Well, the mob is not placated by Lot's offer. They are offended by Lot's offer. The angels have seen enough. They pull Lot inside. They strike the men blind. And now pick it up in verse 12. Verse 12 says, Then the men said to Lot, the angels appearing as men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Just hear the urgency in their voices. Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in this city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry, the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. It's a foregone conclusion now. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Now, do you see the answer to Abraham's question and our question? The answer is yes. The God of the earth does judge rightly, appropriately. His judgments are just and good. Because, as we saw, because all the men there, all the men there are complicit. But complicit in what? Well, that gets hotly debated today, as you might imagine. Let me take a brief moment on that. What are they complicit in? What sin is God judging here? Some say standards of hospitality have been violated, so God judges don't find that convincing. The key is in verse 5. The men say, bring them out to us that we may know them. Now the verb translated know there can mean get acquainted with or it can refer to sexual relations. Okay? Like in Genesis 4 verse 1, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. The verb can mean either one. It often means in the Old Testament, get acquainted with, 
It also can mean sexual relations, and meaning is determined by context. That's how language works. That's how all language works. That's how language works in the Bible. Meaning is determined by context. The context here is clearly sexual. In fact, you see that in verse 8, a few verses later. Lot offers his daughters, he says, who have not known any man. He's not saying they've never met a man in their life. It's a sexual reference. The context is sexual. So some say, some say the issue drawing God's judgment is the attempted gang rape, and rape is heinous and will be judged without a doubt. But the rape here, thankfully, thankfully does not occur thanks to the angel's intervention Yet, God's judgment still occurs. Friends, we cannot exclude that God is here judging the homosexuality of this, the homosexual activity. You can't exclude the homosexual activity from the judgment here. The New Testament makes this clear. The book of Jude says in verse 7, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, and notice, Pursued unnatural desire. Pursued unnatural desire. That's a euphemism in scripture for this kind of activity. They serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, there are many sins happening in Genesis 19. From Lot's unthinkable actions, the demands for gang rape, but Jude makes it clear the homosexual, the homosexual activity is also sparking God's judgment in this passage. Now, as elders, we realize here that we have, in our preaching through Scripture, hit upon an important issue in our culture and one that's debated in the church today. So next week, we're going to devote an entire sermon to helping us think biblically about the issue of homosexuality. We want, to have, we want to have biblical clarity and biblical compassion. Those are the goals, twin goals for next week. Biblical clarity, yes, and biblical compassion on people made in the image of God. For now, for now, realize this. While it is an error to distance homosexuality from this scene, it is also an error to distance ourselves from this scene. God's judgment is just and right and good. And friends, that's going to apply to every single one of us. Jude connects, Jude connects Sodom with God's eternal judgment to come in verse 7. Did you see that? The Apostle Peter does the very same thing in 2 Peter 2, and they got it from Jesus, who said in Luke Chapter 17, the following, Jesus said, On the day when Lot, when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. Now notice the connection. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man, that's Jesus, is revealed. Notice what he's doing. Jesus is connecting the suddenness of judgment on Sodom with the suddenness when he returns. And what happens then? Universal judgment. We all stand before the judgment seat of Christ when he returns. In other words, catch this, Genesis 19 
is pointing to a problem that all of us face. See, in California, we talk about the big one, right? A coming massively destructive earthquake that is so massive, maybe L.A. breaks off into the ocean. And no, no comments, please, about your feelings about L.A. We talk about the big one, right? We fear the big one. Well, imagine this week we have a, a 3.0 earthquake on the Richter scale, a 3.0. You say, well, you know, I felt that. And then the week after that, we have a 3.5. You know, yeah, okay, that was kind of fun. The week after that, we have a 4.0. The week after that, a 4.5. You say, whoa, I've, I felt that one. A month later, a 5.0 hits. A week later, a 6.0 hits. Then a 6.2, and then a 6.5. What are you going to start to think? You're going to start to think these smaller quakes, these lesser tremors, it seems like they're building to the big one. That's how you should think of this judgment passage and every other judgment passage in the Bible. They're all building to the big one. They're all precursors to that one big final universal judgment to come. So let's, let's draw a couple implications here. This means, doesn't it, this means we cannot approach God cafeteria style. We can't say, I, I love His mercy, I love His grace, I really despise His holiness. I don't want to think about His justice. No, friends, as biblical Christians, we must hold these things together. The God of the Bible has a holy love, a holy love. He is full of grace, He is full of mercy, and He is holy and righteous and just. Friends, a good God, a good God punishes sin. That's what we should want, that justice reigns in the earth. So you must hold these things together. You cannot set these attributes of God against each other. But this also means we cannot distance ourselves from Genesis 19, even if this is not your particular temptation or sin. In Joshua next week will distinguish between temptation and sin, which we need to do in this arena. We cannot say, see, God killed people for homosexuality, so homosexuality is an abomination. We cannot say that and still neglect the abominations in ourselves. Are you tracking with me? Just, just consider with me, this is an interesting exercise, some of the other times in the Bible when God killed people. I mean, you have the flood, okay, wipes out all humanity. I think that included a lot of sins, probably everything you can imagine. But let's just think from there. You have priests named Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10 who approach God in an unauthorized way, maybe drunken as well, we're not sure. God kills them on the spot to say, you know what, I'm holy. You've got Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6 
helping to move the ark of God, doing a godly thing. When the oxen stumble, the ark begins to slide. It's going to hit the dirt. So Uzzah reaches out and puts his hand up to steady the ark, and God says, wham! Because Uzzah assumed that his humanity was not as defiling as the dirt. A New Testament example. Don't, don't, don't say, oh, the God of the Old Testament was angry. God of New Testament is love. No, that's cafeteria style. <laughs> Ananias and Sapphira. They just fudged the numbers. It wasn't a big deal. They just exaggerated their generosity a little bit. They wanted a little bit more on the contribution statement. God killed them to send a little message to the early church. My point, friends, is that if we're going to use the abomination language, we need to include ourselves. Sodom is proof that God rightly judges all. He will rightly judge all the earth. So what's the response? We've seen question, we've seen answer. What's the response? The response is to fear rightly, the God who judges rightly. If you want a takeaway point, here's my offer to you. Fear rightly. Fear rightly the God who judges rightly. Lot's sons-in-law thought Lot was jesting, it says. They thought he was joking. The old man is out of his mind. He's off his rocker. He must be pulling our leg. And that's maybe how you're thinking about this warning passage, this judgment passage. This passage might seem to you like the Orson Welles broadcast of the War of the Worlds. Familiar with that? Seemed like a typical evening of radio programming when a series of news flashes began to interrupt the radio programming. News bulletins spoke of odd explosions on the planet Mars, and then a news report said an unusual object had fallen on a farm in New Jersey, and then there was a live report from that farm in New Jersey as police and curious onlookers surrounded this strange cylindrical object, and then the news report said Martians had emerged from the cylindrical object and began to attack people with a heat ray, and then the panic shouting of the reporter is cut off suddenly. And then there's a live report from New York City where Martian war machines have just released poisonous gas. And as you may know, some thought it was a real invasion. True story, some people packed the roads. Some people hid in cellars with loaded guns. Some people wrapped their heads in wet towels to protect from the poison Martian gas. It's possible to think of Genesis 19 like that broadcast. It's just some hoax. It's so ridiculous. I mean, it's some primitive view of an angry God. Listen, this passage is in the Bible to say to us today, don't ignore the judgment to come. This passage is in our Bibles as a loving warning from God to us today to say, don't ignore the big one. It's coming. It's saying to us today, you're sailing on the Titanic. 
and this ship is doomed. God's judgment, yes, brings physical death, like in this passage, which merely points, friends, to God's judgment, which brings spiritual, eternal death to all who are outside of Christ. An eternity under God's judgment in a real place called hell. So the response is to take the warning seriously, to benefit from it, to fear rightly. Let me show you what I mean. Pick up the story again, verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up! Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he, Lot, lingered. So I love this. The men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. The Lord being merciful to him and brought them out and set them outside the city. It's like forced salvation. I love this. This is what God does to us. Grabs us, I will force you to be rescued. You're going to be outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Notice Lot lingers, hesitates. They're merciful to him. They say, take your wife, take your family. Don't look back. Don't look longingly back at this city. Don't, don't, look, don't look fondly back to this condemned place. Flee with haste is the point. Verse 23, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. God's clear instruction was, don't look back. But she looked back. It seems as though she was still identifying herself with the city, still identifying herself self with what God was condemning, still identifying herself with what God was judging. It's as if she doesn't want to make a clean break from what she's been rescued from. So she looks back. She doesn't take the warning seriously enough. Now, why do I say this, res this response relates to you and me? Well, that's because of what Jesus said in Luke 17 when he makes that connection between Sodom and his appearance and judgment. Luke 17, he says this next. Ah, remember Lot's wife. <laughs> remember Lot's wife, Christians, believers, followers of Jesus. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life living for Jesus will keep it. Jesus applies Genesis 19 straight to us and says, remember Lot's wife. Don't, don't identify yourself with what is being condemned around you. Remember Lot's wife. Make, make, make a clean break from what God is saving you from remember Lot's wife and don't live only for this life. Take the warning seriously. Fear rightly, I would say. Fear rightly. The God who judges rightly. 
And I say fear. I say fear because it's really, friends, a change that must take place in our hearts. Don't, don't relegate this just to some, some pattern of outward behavior. It, it's a fearing. It's a change that must take place in our hearts. Hearts that aren't craving so much what we've been saved from. Hearts that aren't so longing for what God judges and condemns. Hearts that see the emptiness of all that. And hearts instead that are growing in what Augustine called rightly ordered loves. Rightly ordered loves. That's how we fear rightly, I think. We have a growing sense of rightly ordered loves in our soul. Let me, let me give you a couple examples pulled from this passage. What about a rightly ordered love in our sexuality? In our sexuality. In this passage, God's gift of sexuality is distorted by mankind's sinfulness. Now, that's not just a distant historical fact. That's a distortion every single one of us in this room experiences. I've heard Marshall Narvison put it well. He said many times, look, every single one of us is a sexual sinner somehow. We can't distance ourselves. All of us are affected by this distortion. Where is that for you? What, what would a rightly ordered love in your sexuality look like? How do you need to remember Lot's wife in that arena with a, with a rightly ordered love? Might mean, just pick the low-hanging fruit, turning away from pornography. Tell someone you're struggling. Tell someone you're sinning that way. Pull aside your home group leader or a friend in your home group. Say, I need help temptation, for struggle, the percentages for men and women who are regularly looking at pornography are astounding, friends. Get help if that's you. I'm not trying to condemn you. I'm appealing to you. Get help. Reach out for help. Call me. Call one of the elders. Reach out for help and cultivate new loves in what you're looking at online. It might mean turning away from lust and illicit desire for someone who's not your spouse and getting help and saying to someone in your care group or your home group, would you help me here? I need to share something with you. I need you to pray for me. I need you to help me renew my mind with God's word because I'm desiring him or her and I shouldn't be. I know that. Might mean just look, you're praying for a greater desire to be holy because the one who calls you to himself is holy. It could be a rightly ordered love in your sexuality. It could be a rightly ordered love related to prosperity as well. That's sort of a theme in Lot's life. Lot picked the well watered land so he could prosper materially ends up camping near Sodom. Now we find he's a leading citizen of Sodom. Do you see the progression? <laughs> it's not so subtle. He ends up losing all he had, even his wife, sadly. It's a helpful warning, isn't it? 
so easy to live primarily for what we can acquire. To make my definition of success, how much money I make, how much I can buy, a house, a car, I enjoy. God gives good gifts to enjoy. I'm not saying otherwise. But I am saying recognize the, the siren song of material prosperity that can tempt us to crash our faith on the rocks. If we, Scripture says, love money, if we love it, we are in grave danger. Maybe the Spirit is saying to you right now, remember Lot's wife. And instead, like we read in 1 Timothy 6, treasure, store up treasures as a firm foundation for the future, for your generosity. Friends, we fear rightly, rightly ordered loves, and that comes from, that comes from seeing the greater love of God in Christ. You need to see the, the greatest love of all, have a rightly ordered love. See, we started off with that tension, right? That tension between the God who extravagantly blesses and the God who also has holy justice. And that tension is resolved in the cross of Jesus Christ. That tension is resolved in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God rightly judges our sin, but he judged his son in our place for all who believe. You have Abraham here interceding like a priest for Sodom and Gomorrah, but friends, we have a priest interceding for us right now with his life, death, and resurrection. And if Abraham's intercession was effective for Lot, don't you think Jesus' intercession is going to be effective for you? This is how we fear rightly, this greater love. We see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying as our priest, Father, if it be possible, remove this cup from me, this cup of judgment. You rightly judge sin. I'm holding this cup before me, this cup I'm going to drink hanging on a cross. Father, if it be possible, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Oh, friends, you see that love of God for you? And you'll begin to not look back nearly as much. So friends, let us fear rightly the God who judges rightly. And let us flee to Christ who is all satisfying. Let us flee to Christ for greater joy. Let us feast on Him by faith. And to do that, to help us do that, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Would the music team please come? Those who are going to serve us the elements, please prepare to do so. I'm going to take the bread and the cup this morning saying, thanks be to God for my priest interceding for me with his life, death, and resurrection. Because God rightly judges all the earth. Friends, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I would not be a faithful pastor if I told you otherwise. You and I will stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. It is imperative that we are 
reconciled to him now by believing. Oh, and rejoicing in what he has accomplished for you as your priest interceding for you right now. That you would leave here so aware of his love leading to a rightly ordered love in your heart.